Um, so, for the last uh, for the last few weeks, we haven't even met. So, that's hard, right? Because we're tackling a you know pretty tough subject, and we come to tonight, um, which is kind of moving the ball a little bit further. And I think it's important that we take a step back and just remember what the the uh, points were along the way that we've come to so far. And we started this whole thing by understanding just the doctrine of original sin. What, what, what is it, what kind of state are we in? And why is it are, that we are condemned? Um, we, I think most of us probably would easily answer, and we'd be right to some extent to say, well, we are condemned because I sin. I do, um, I, I, I commit sin. I, on a daily basis, there's choices that I make that are sinful that are against God and His Word. And that's true. Um, but the reality of what the Bible is depicting is that we're condemned, but even before them, even before I ever make a choice, we're condemned as humanity because all of humanity is fallen. So the reality of what we're seeing here is that original sin means that our condemnation before God doesn't just come because we make sinful choices, but our condemnation comes because we are members of the human race. That we were represented by Adam, Adam fell, and as such, all of humanity fell with him. So everybody was given the death penalty. Every single person was given the death penalty from the get-go before they were ever born. They were given that death penalty because our federal head, the one that represented us, was Adam. He fell, everybody else fell because we all inherited the guilt from him. But we didn't just inherit the guilt of original sin and that makes us worthy of condemnation. We also inherited a corrupt nature. So the reason why we sin is because we're sinners. We're sinners because we're Adam's children. We sin then because we're sinners, right? So, which sometimes we reverse that, but the reality is we don't have to teach our kids to, to steal and to cheat and to hit each other. We have to teach them the opposite. They're, they're born with that knowledge. They come out knowing how to, how, to, um, how to pitch a fit and disobey mom and dad and stick a fork in the light socket. Why is it always that every time they have, it's only when you give them a fork that they're like, this, should, this fits well in that light socket I've seen, you know? And then they wait till your back is turned, and then they're like, I know I shouldn't do this, but I want to. Um, so we've inherited a, a, a corrupt nature, So we sin because of that inherited corruption that we've gotten from Adam. And so all of that is a rejection of the lordship of of Christ, of of God. He he has been our our ruler and is king and would have us submit to him and enact his rule on the earth. And that sinful nature that we've inherited, that corrupt nature, wants to push against that and say, no, we're kings of our own domain and we'll, we'll take it from here, thanks. And, um, and for that, uh, death is the, only, is the only option. We deserve punishment. So what we talked about the last time we were together was uh, setting our Christology right, our understanding of who Christ is, because it's kind of a, 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 basically a pause on that whole line of thinking about sin and things like that, is, is to say, well, what, what then is Jesus? And what makes him different? Well, we see that he didn't inherit original sin. He didn't inherit in, uh, corruption from birth. What he was was truly man 
He was born of a woman, like mankind is, but he was also truly God, 100% man, and yet also 100% God. Never before has anything like that come about, and never before, never since will anything come like that again. Uh, he is unique in that he is 100% um, uh, God and 100% man. And he fits the bill for someone to come and rescue us because there is a law put on humanity and a charge given to Adam that from the get-go, you're going to uh, rule the earth and have dominion over it, over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and you are, as God's creation, going to enact God's rule on the earth. And so mankind was given that responsibility to enact God's rule on the earth. Submit everyone to God's rule and His reign. And Adam failed at doing that, couldn't do it, and, but it's a charge given uniquely to mankind. Well, the problem is, now that Adam has fallen, we've all inherited the corruption from Adam, we can't do the charge that Adam was given. And that's apparent. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that is true. Israel's given that charge, they can't do it. The kings are given that charge, they cannot do it. Everyone seems to fail, but it's mankind's responsibility to do. And so the only way that that rule could be accomplished or that, the, that God's will could be done in there is, is to have a man do it. And so Christ comes along as a man to do that. But since man could not do it, he also had to have the, the nature of God himself uh, so that he didn't inherit the corruption of Adam and that he could enact God's rule and reign. And so even now... As he is resurrected from the dead, he is, as Paul would say it, uh, making God's enemies his footstool. He is submitting the world to God's rule and his reign. That is what he's in the process of doing even at this very moment. And so, um, so having all those points in line, then we move to the atonement. What was actually done by Christ on the cross? And I will just say up front that probably more so than any other night, tonight would be the one where there will be the most, <laughs> this will be the most, if, if you say uh, the jagged pill to swallow, this will probably be the, the one, all right? And I don't want to say that because uh, I'm preparing you for any knockdown drag out or anything like that. That's not going to happen. Um, we'll shut this baby down before we ever get to that, okay? But, uh, but just to say that uh, I understand that there are differences of opinion on some of these things, um, and, and some of those are, are fine. We can talk about those, and we can discuss those, and they, they remain differences, and that, that's okay. Uh, I understand there won't be 100% conformity on any of this, but uh, I will present what I think the Bible is actually saying about salvation and what Christ actually accomplished on the cross. And um, so we're going to do that, and then we'll just take it from there. And probably for most of it, y'all will go, well, yeah, of course, I agree with that. And then maybe we'll get to a point where you go, wait a second. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so um, the, uh, let's start with the very first blank here. The atonement cannot be understood properly where the biblical view of God's justice and humanity's sinfulness is not grasped. So we've spent a lot of time in the, in the last few weeks going through humanity's sinfulness to try to grasp just what kind of situation we're in and how dire it really is. 
you and I are born condemned, so we're from the womb condemned, and there's no sense of clarity that I might get to be able to kind of overcome that, right? I'm condemned from the get-go, and I have an inherited corruption that I can't just like put aside and just step over and overcome that on my own accord. And so we're in a, quite, of a pick, quite a bit of a pickle. And then if we couple that with what this first sentence is saying, God's justice, then we see I'm in a state where I can't just overcome my nature, and God is also just, and what does that mean that He has to do? Well, he's got to punish me, right? And so what the Bible is telling us is that justice is essentially God giving everyone their due. Well, I am due an eternal punishment for rebellion against God, yes? We, we clear on that? Okay, if I'm due that, and God's right to give that to me, um, then God's justice means that in the Bible, and as the Bible teaches, that, it's, that it, it means a lot of things, but it certainly starts with retribution for wrongdoing. In other words, because we have infringed on God's holiness and His justice, then He is right to punish us. In other words, pay us back, retribute us for our wrongdoing, to actually give to us a punishment for the wrong that we have done. You came in just at the first blank, so you're good to go. Retribution is the first blank there, so you're good to go. Um, look at Genesis 3, 14-19, and then Revelation 22, 18-19. What I wanted to do here was just give you the bookends. All right, This is the beginning of his retribution for man's sinfulness, and the end of the book, Okay, where his retribution for sinfulness is. And it's just every page in between, so I could cite the whole Bible if I wanted to, I guess. Verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, understand, the the punishment that's coming to the serpent and all the ones in between, all the ones after him, are, is because of what they've done. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the beasts of the field. On your belly you will go. Uh, to the woman he said, I will multiply your pain in childbearing, and in your pain you shall bring forth children. That's verse 16. Uh, and, to the, and to Adam he said, verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I command you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn and thistles it shall bring forth of you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken from dust. From you, for you are dust and dust you shall return. So he's given him death as retribution for his sin. It's, it's, a, it's a payback, as it were. And then look at Revelation 22, 18, 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. So there, there is a, a retributive aspect of God's justice here that we see that it, that's what God's justice actually means in relation to our sinfulness is that he has to pay us for our sin and that payment is Death is eternal death, is judgment. So he, he, that has to be given to us. It's a payback, as it were. Second blank here. God's mercy to guilty sinners is framed by His holy hostility or wrath against their sins. So it's, it's 
the way that the Bible explains that retribution towards their sin is as wrath, that God has stored up wrath for humanity and it will be given to them. It will be paid to them. Look at Matthew 3, 7. But when he saw many, this is John the Baptist, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. All right, so there is wrath that is coming upon humanity for which they need to repent. But then look at 3.36. This is in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In other words, wrath is placed on humanity as repayment for their sin, and it remains on them outside of Christ. We're going to talk about the inside of Christ part in just a second, but just... Hear how the New Testament is communicating. For the wrath of God, in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Look at Romans 2.8. For those who are self-seeking do not obey the truth, but, but obey unrighteousness. There, there will be wrath and fury. 3.5. But if our unrighteousness serve to show the righteousness of God, what should we say then? God is, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? 5.9 Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Um, I mean, we could go on and on and on and on. Colossians 3.6 at the bottom of this page. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The way the New Testament over and over, and I've got more verses in this point than in any other. There are people who will deny that the atonement, that Jesus' death was in large part due to satisfy the wrath of God. There are people that will deny that. There are people that go so far as to scrub wrath out of the hymns that we sing. Um, The one hymn that comes to mind is is the Gettys hymn from 2008. I say it comes to mind, uh, and then it just the title of it apparently didn't. But it, there's a line in there: "The wrath of God is satisfied." Um, what what is it? What's the title? In Christ alone. Thank you. It's the the most famous hymn that the Gettys have ever written. And there's some that want to take wrath out of that that line. In fact, I was I heard an interview with Keith Getty who said that there was there was a uh, denomination that wanted to put it in their hymnal, and they asked the Gettys for permission to change that line. Um, and he said, no, <laughs> you, you cannot change that line. Um, and so, uh, but, but the point is, there are people that want to uh, explain the crucifixion in ways that do not include Christ satisfying the wrath of God. And it is evident that there is wrath that God has rightfully stored up for humanity. So understanding the gospel is first and foremost understanding that God is rightly uh, repaying man for his sinfulness and that, that what that is called in the New Testament is wrath. So it's right for us to say that the gospel is God is angry at you. And so then some others want to change the gospel presentation 
to God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that's not the first step. That's not, under, that's not the, a right understanding of the gospel. We're not, we're not on a, an initial footing there to say that. It should be, God actually has wrath stored up for you, and for that, He is going to pour out an eternity in hell. That's the bad news of the gospel. In order for the good news of the gospel to be good, there's got to be some bad news first. Otherwise, you can't see the gospel as good news. I was talking to a friend of mine, and kind of an aside, but uh, this is free. I was talking to a, a friend of mine um, who is, uh, is in a same-sex, so-called same-sex marriage. Uh, or some people in our camp might call it a same-sex mirage. All right. Um, and, and because it's not true. And, um, and so he said to me, I was sharing the gospel with him, we were talking back and forth, and he said, um, we're on the same boat. That's been his position this whole time is we're on the same boat, we're going the same direction, and you're going to be surprised when I'm there with you in the end. And, I, and he was failing to grasp the gospel. And one time I said um, that we're all sinful. We're all in the same boat, every single one of us. That is, the, is the, the, the news of the gospel, is that you and I, we're condemned. One sin makes us short of the glory of God. That's it. We're condemned from birth because we, we're in Adam. And he says, well, then there's no hope for any of us. I said, yes! That's why the gospel is good news. I have good news for you. You can make it, right? That doesn't have to be your fate. That's why the gospel is good news is because we're condemned under the wrath of God and there's no escaping it, right? In and of ourselves, there's no escaping it. Okay, so... Human nature is, this third point here, human nature is radically twisted into a deliberate and indispensable habit of God-defying self-service so that God's punish, God's requirement of perfect love is permanently beyond our reach. And this marks our lives every day. What is due to us from God is condemnation and rejection. So this is what God has required is perfect love from us. We can see that in 1 Corinthians 13, can't we? You read it, and you go, you good at doing any of that? Not taking account of wrongdoing? All right? You ever been married? All right? There's, there's a ledger that you want to build up, and you want to keep kind of in your back pocket, close at hand, right? For maybe in the day you mess up, well, you, and then you start reading off the list, right? That's kind of what we do, but that's, that's part of our... I can see married people laughing. They know, <laughs> they've known this is true. This is, this is part of our nature. This is what we want to do. But, but perfect love toward God, perfect love toward each other, is what is required, and we have found ourselves wanting each and every day. We cannot give that. So for that, we deserve condemnation and rejection. Now... There is a built-in, this fourth point, the, there is a built-in function of the human conscience which tells everyone that when we behave, when we misbehave, rather, we ought to suffer for it. Isn't that in there? When you do something wrong, isn't there something in you that tells you, for that wrong, I should pay a penalty for it? Isn't this why when kids disobey their parents, they hide? Even dogs do it, right? 
Uh, isn't, isn't it? I mean, you come home and one of them scattered the trash everywhere and you got two dogs have scattered, you got two dogs, one of them scattered the trash and one of them's been perfectly obedient the whole time, right? And you come home and you say, which one of you did it? And one of them's got it hiding underneath the couch with his head underneath the couch and the other one's like, we're happy you're home. <laughs> yeah, even dogs do it. They know there, there's an aspect of our nature that tells us when we've done something wrong, we refer to it as the human conscience, but what it tells us is that we actually deserve punishment for what we've done. So God has essentially baked this in to creation, that you know that you've not only done something wrong, but that you deserve punishment for it. Okay, so let's, let's go to the next little set here. So we, we understand that wrath is stored up for us, that God uh, is rightfully angry, with humanity for its rebellion against him is rightfully going to the plan is to pour out his wrath on humanity and that all of us are in that boat and we deserve to be there and there's even if we say even if we look at adam and go well, i wasn't there in the garden when he made that decision and i'd kind of like a say in this okay well let's let your life be the say all right I think every one of us, when it comes down to actually the decisions we make, we go, well, <laughs> maybe I don't want my life to be the same after all. So we'd have to at least look at our own life and say, yeah, I mean, I, I, I sin, I do disobey, and no matter what he gives to me, there's, there's nothing that he would give to me that I couldn't disobey. So I deserve the, the anger and the wrath stored up for me. So we understand that. And we also understand now, I think, that the New Testament's word for that is the wrath of God, um, that it's stored up for humanity. All right, now moving on here. In the Old Testament, the idea of propitiation, propitiation, I know you're going to ask, how do you spell that? P-R-O-P-I-T, so it's pro-pit-I-T. A shun. Propitiation. Um, so pro, the, the Old Testament, the idea of propitiation, which is by definition averting God's anger by an offering. Averting God's anger by an offering. In the Old Testament, averting God's anger by an offering is called propitiation, and it underlies all of the prescribed rituals throughout the Old Testament. That is, the sin offering, the guilt offering, and the Day of Atonement. It underlies all of that. That is essentially what they're doing on those, those days. Now, I have cited here Leviticus 4, 1 through 6, 7, and I didn't put that down because that's a whole lot of, I mean, multiply that by the number of packets, it's a whole, it ends up being a whole lot of pages. So, I just cited the specific, the specific one that you can focus on. Go back and read all of that. It's all there. Um, but, but basically, just I'm going to focus on 6, 2 to 7. I think maybe that might be uh, concise to give you the, the flavor. And then 16, 1 to 34, I, I cited 11 through 14 of that passage to give you kind of the, the idea of what's going on there. Um, as soon as I get there. It's on the sec page 4, I guess is what it is. If anyone, this is Leviticus 6, 2-7, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, 
swearing falsely, in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took, uh, uh, and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. He shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. All right? How about Leviticus 16, 11 to 14? Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar of the Lord of, before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side and in the front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. But look at Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement for your life. Then again, number 16, 41 to 50. But on the next day, the, uh, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and, and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the, the people of the Lord. This is after Korah's rebellion. The earth opened up and swallowed them whole. Remember that? Terrifying event. So Moses is being accused of killing them all. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting. And behold, the cloud covered it. Uh-oh. And the glory of the Lord appeared. Double uh-oh. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from, the, from off the altar, and lay incense on it, and carry it quickly to the congregation, and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord, the plague has begun. Oh, man. So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense, uh, he, he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700, beside those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. God's wrath has come against their sinfulness, and the only thing that will suffice is, there, is, a, is an atoning work, an atoning work by the priest. He had to make atonement to satisfy the anger that the Lord had against the people for their sin. Uh, so that underlies the whole sacrificial system, especially as it, as it pertains to sin offerings. 
So in the New Testament, this concept of propitiation, averting God's anger by an offering, is of central importance. The New Testament, the concept uh, is of central importance. The love of God, the taking of human form by the Son, the meaning of the cross, Christ's heavenly intercession, the way of salvation, all are to be explained in terms of Him satisfying or averting the wrath of God. Let's look at Romans 3, 21-26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at present times that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now remember, in Romans, so far up to this point where we are in 321, He has been making the argument that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against mankind for all sorts of ungodliness. He says that back in Romans 1.18. And then he goes on through all of 1 and 2 to explain why the wrath of God is justified against all humanity because then he gets to 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the wrath of God is rightfully saved up against humanity for this reason. And so then what does he say? He put Christ forward to be a propitiation. Not just putting the sins on him, but actually satisfying the wrath also. Putting the sins on him would be the expiation. That would be getting rid of the sins. Propitiation is not only that, but also satisfying his own wrath. So he put him forward to do that. So it's of central importance. And the rest of the passages go on, Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he made him uh, to be... um, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Um... My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Anyone who does not love uh, does not know God, because God is love. In this love God, uh, of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. All right. So that's a lot of Scripture. Along with the, uh, this next blank, along with the other New Testament writers, Paul always points to the death of Jesus as the atoning event that, it, that explains the atonement in terms of representative substitution representative substitution. He was our representative, and he substituted himself for us. Now, we're going to go into, in subsequent weeks, Jesus taking the place of Adam. It's important to understand what Adam was for us, but it's going to be also very important for us to understand what Jesus is for us, and how we come to be born by Jesus. We were born by Adam, 
by natural means, by human means. But how are we born of Jesus, since he is a new kind of human, right? How, do we, how are we actually born again, as it were? Um, so that's important. But for now, we have to understand that Jesus was, our, again, our representative. As Adam was our representative, and because he fell, we all fell. Now Jesus serves as a representative for humanity. And where he succeeds, what's going to happen to those who are in him, who are born in him? Well, they're going to be, they're going to succeed as well. Uh, look at Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. 2 Corinthians 5.18-20, just a few verses later. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he's telling you, Jesus served as our substitute. Substitute for what? the wrath of God. It's the only, that's what he substituted himself for. All right, so what all of that means is the basic description of the saving death of Christ in the Bible is as a propitiation. That is, as that which quenched God's wrath against us by obliterating our sins from his sight. We see that prophesied in Isaiah. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten and by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. That's what he's saying. The suffering servant, the one coming to die for us, the one coming to give us salvation is coming to take our place and to satisfy the wrath of God, to have the chastisement laid upon him, our own sins laid upon him. Romans 5, 8 and 5, 10. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, think about that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For, verse 10, for while we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Okay, so all of that's true, right? I, I hope we would probably agree with that. Okay, fine. But what does that actually mean? What, what, what happened that day 2,000 years ago? And here is where Christians will diverge. I think most of us in this room will probably always agree that all of those things I've set up to this point are absolutely fundamental to the Christian faith. They're fundamental to the gospel that we believe. Here is where the Christians will diverge. diverge. Did Christ on the cross definitively once save all of God's people? Or 
when he died, did he make it possible for people to be saved? That is a hard question. And that, it's a million dollar question. It's the one that many of us actually wrestle with. And some of you are going, wait, what? <laughs> why, why are those different? Why, why, why do we have to wrestle over those questions? And probably a whole host of other things. Let's think about it for a second. Uh, what did Christ actually accomplish on that day? And let's think about the significance of both of those things. First, Jesus' blood obtains all of the promises of the new covenant. So what does Jesus' blood actually do? What happened on that cross? What did he do that day 2,000 years ago? His blood obtained all of the promises of the new covenant. Now, what is the new covenant? I want, I want to read this here. Jeremiah 32, 39-41. This is God's promise of the new covenant through the prophet Jeremiah. He's telling them what's going to happen. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. Remember, they're going into exile in Babylon, right? That's what's happening in the context. Jeremiah's saying, you're going into exile, but here's what's going to happen in the future. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. We're going to call this the new covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. God is making some promises in the new covenant that He is going to do. He is going to enact. I am going to do what? Well, he says, at, there's at least six promises in here. There's probably a host more, but he says, one, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. So this is that new covenant. I'm going to make them a covenant that he's not going to break. I will give them to, I will give them the kind of heart that secures their fearing of me forever. It's, he, God says he's going to do that, right? All of these are I will statements. None of these are, well, then they're going to have to do this. No, all of these are I will statements. I'm going to do this. I'm going to give them a new heart. Um, and the, the problem was, obviously, their hard-heartedness. They didn't want to turn to the Lord. That's why they're going into exile. They couldn't turn back to the Lord because of what we've already said. There's, there's present sinfulness. The Old Testament is illustrative of that. But now he says, well, here's what's going what's to happen. Not only am I going to give them my law, still, the law's going to be there, but I'm going to supply their ability to do it. Right? By giving them a new heart. And then he says, three, I will never turn away from doing them good. Four, I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Five, I will not let them turn away from me. Six, I will rejoice in doing good to them. Right? Okay. So this is what he promises in the new covenant. So God then is taking sovereign initiative. It's next blank. God is taking the sovereign initiative to make sure that the covenant succeeds. In the Old Testament, we have the get, given to them the law, but we see an inability on their part to actually do it. The new covenant is, the law still exists, you still have to obey, you still have to be holy, for I am holy, but what's going to change is I'm actually going to empower you to do it. That's what's going to change. I'm going to replace your heart. 
I'm going to change it out entirely. So he's taking the sovereign initiative to make sure that the covenant succeeds. God will not leave it finally in the power of fallen humanity or the fallen human, uh, the fallen human will to attain or sustain membership in the new covenant. He will give a new heart, a heart that fears the Lord. It will be decisively God's doing, not man's. Look at Deuteronomy 36 and the Lord uh, 30 verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This is a precursor to the prophecy of the new covenant coming in Jeremiah. Moses tells you right there in Deuteronomy, I will give you a new heart. That's what's got to happen in this whole deal. Here's the law. You're not going to obey it. I'm going to have to give you a new heart. It's coming. Just want you to sit in this for a while. All right? And just come to understand it. I'm going to give you a new heart and soul that you may live. All right. So, in satisfying the wrath of God, second to last blank here, in satisfying the wrath of God, Christ has ended any hostility God has ever or will ever have toward His people, either in the past or the future. In other words, if you are truly in Christ, God's wrath toward you was satisfied before you were ever born because Jesus decisively laid down His life for His sheep and saved them from God's wrath. Before you were ever born, Christ died. And when He died, He satisfied God's wrath for you. Forever. How many of your sins were in the future when Christ died? Yeah. So Christ died on that day 2,000 years ago and satisfied the wrath that God will ever have toward you. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, that is salvation. Understand, how much did you have to do with it? That is salvation. Christ saved you. When we talk about salvation, we often say, I'm saved. I got saved. It's probably better to talk about it in three phases. I was saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. I am saved, or I was saved, I was saved, is saying, there was a day 2,000 years ago when Christ died on the cross and there He saved me. That's over. God's wrath against me, satisfied. But, but wait, 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 what about an eternity in hell? How can God send to hell someone He has no wrath toward? He can't. That's the answer. He can't. He can't pour out wrath on you for eternity if that wrath was absorbed on the cross. Correct? Okay. So now we're in uncomfortable territory. We're getting close, right? Because I didn't have anything to do with that. That's uncomfortable for us to talk about. But how can you possibly even conceive of salvation ever? Any decision you might make or anything like that 
without looking 2,000 years ago and going, wait a second, it was already done 2,000 years ago. On the cross, Jesus didn't purchase the ability to be saved. He saved people 2,000 years ago by satisfying a real wrath that God had toward me and all of humanity for sin. And it gets really uncomfortable when we think, wait a second, not everyone is saved, right? Some are going to hell for eternity. Yes? Is this true? What is hell? And why do they get an eternity in it? What is it, and why do they get an eternity in it? James? Sure. But why, you may have friends argue this, how can a good and loving God send someone to hell for eternity? Eternity! Okay. Okay. But why does that deserve an eternity? Eternity? Because it is the wrath of God against rebellion. His wrath is eternal. We have to then ask, what did Jesus suffer on the cross? That was an eternity of hell for all of the sins of His people in six hours. That's what was poured out on the shoulders of Christ on the cross in six hours was an eternity of hell right there. Let's push this just a little bit further and then we'll read the Scriptures. Further, the application of Christ's salvation of His people transpired before the foundation of the world. This is where it gets really uncomfortable. Um, let's look, though, at some of these passages. Let's look first at Ephesians 1, verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. What does that mean? How can we, sinful humanity, who were condemned in Adam, who were guilty of inherited guilt, inherited sin, like we, we inherited corruption, we, we continue to sin. How can we ever be holy and blameless before Him? Only if His wrath toward us was satisfied. When was the propitiation accomplished? He says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Well, then go to Revelation 13, 8, where He says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, that is the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So the book of life of the Lamb who was slain is the title, and in it are names. And those names are written when? 
He says before the foundation of the world. Okay, so then, what is it that we're seeing here? Because we have to ask the uncomfortable questions. Jesus died on the cross and took the wrath of God. We've already said that we believe that. That's what he did. He took the wrath of God. He didn't take the potentiality for the wrath of God to be resolved, to be absolved. He absolved it. He took care of it there. There it was done. God has no more wrath. Holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption. So then, that is strange. What about, what about me in the meantime... I have been saved by Christ. My salvation was accomplished by Christ. He said on the cross, it is finished. It's done. So it was done there. But now what about the I am being saved part? How does that come about? Because like you and I, I preach, repent, believe, come to faith in Christ, believe in the gospel, don't I? I preach that. What is that? How, how does, what happens there? When someone says, I believe, I repent of my sin, what happens in that moment? Well, the Bible tells us that too. Look at John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Who's giving the, these to Jesus? Who is giving them to Jesus? The Father is giving them. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What do they do when the Father gives them to Jesus? What do they do? They come to him. But then look just a few verses later in 644, he says, No one can come unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Okay? Look at John 10, 15. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father... And I lay down my life for the sheep. He tells us who he's laying down his life for. For the sheep. Romans 8, 1. Then what happens as a result of that? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he says, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you. All who the Father draws come to me, and I will never cast them out. How does it work? Who are the ones on the pews who respond to the call of salvation? The one whom the Father draws. That's what he says. He says it. Which is the grounding, that whole process, of how I am being saved. How I come to be saved. By professing faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of my sins, believing. What have I done? Simply responding to what God has actually given to the sinner. He has granted. So then it's the grounding for what Paul says in Romans 8, 31-39. He makes this promise. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
Hold on. How would those things separate you from the love of God? Persecution? How would it separate you from the love of God? What would it cause you to do? Turn tail and run. I would famine or nakedness. You ever been in the middle of trial? You ever been tempted to run the opposite direction from the Lord? He says, no, no, no. None of that will ever separate his elect from his love. Why? Because Christ died for them. He called them. They're his. He's working in them. He is empowering them. He is keeping them. If you don't believe that, you back up three verses from 31 here, and you'll see that's exactly what Paul says. What does he say then? Because he's doing all this, because he's kept us, he's saved us, he's called us, he's brought us out of darkness, because he's secured us, because he sent his son to do that and to die for that purpose, to satisfy his own wrath and to save us, because he's done that, nothing can separate us then. Tribulation can come. It's not going to separate us. Famine can come. It's not going to separate us. War can come. It's not going to separate us. I'm not going to leave Christ's side, not because I'm so strong and so powerful. We've proven that that's not true. I'm not going to leave Christ's side because he's got me. So he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Only reason that can ever be promised or secured is if God is the one who provides the salvation. That's it. If it's God comes to the middle and then just requires me to finish the job, there is no guarantee that I'll be there in the end. Ask yourself this question. If you can choose God of your own free will, can you unchoose Him after having chosen Him? The answer has to be yes, if that's what you say. But the proof that that's not how we're saved is that you were saved before you were ever born. 2,000 years ago, Christ died and satisfied the wrath of God. You were saved then, before you'd ever made a choice. Questions? I'm sure there will be some. Go ahead. <laughs> Others. Go ahead, Timothy.
Absolutely. Precisely. 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 That's it. that one too. The one that he just said, I pray as if it was up to God, I work as if it was up to me. See if there's any questions. Go ahead, Shannon. Tell me which passage in particular you're referring to, because there's two that come to mind that are communicating different points about his intercession. So I want to. What? Do it. Yeah. Be sure to bring that up next time with that question. Yeah, go ahead. Because the evidence of his name being written in the book of life before the foundation of the world is that he endures in faith. And that's his point, is that if I'm doing all this and then I do it in vain, in other words, and I, I, I'm with you, I can't quote exactly what he's saying, but unless I, I preach in vain and then I stumble and after preaching to everyone else, I fall short of the finish line, what he's saying is the, the reality of salvation has already been accomplished. But we... As far as our presentation of the gospel, I don't know who in this room is I don't know of my own salvation, right? The mark of one who is saved is that they endure through the finish line. And Paul's saying, if I fall short, my name's not written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Does that make sense? Like, there, there are people who will come into our congregation who will profess faith in Christ and say and put a convincing argument on the floor that they are saved. They believe the gospel, that they repent of sin, and so on and so forth. And we say, yes, you are members of the body of Christ. And then they turn, they leave their family, and run off, and we say, hey, what happened to the whole believe in Jesus, repent of your sins? And they say, not today, right? And they are gone. Are, are they believers? We certainly thought they were, but are they? 
It's the same thing John says in, 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 the epistle is, in his epistle. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. We thought they were. We thought they were legitimate Christians, but we find out they're not because the mark of what it means to actually have your name written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, is to endure through to the end. We find that out. God doesn't, right? God, God knows whose names are in there. They're written in there before the foundation of the world, but there's a lot of people that will mimic and provide a convincing argument to us that they're saved, but won't make it. And that's what, that's what Paul's getting at. Does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying? Um, I would say Paul asks that question in Romans 9, and he answers it in Romans 9. Um, and I would, I would make a note to read that. Since we're pushed for time, read that. We'll continue to talk about this, I promise. And we'll get back to Romans 9, because it's going to be a really important part of understanding our own salvation. Where he asks the question, um, he poses it to himself, because he's just said, you know, before... Jacob and Esau were born before either one of them chose good or evil. He said, Jacob, have I loved and Esau have I hated? And he says, does he not have the right as a creator to create for himself vessels of wrath for destruction and vessels of good use? And so it poses the question, Paul asks it and then answers it right there in Romans 9. So I want to get back to that later, but let's, let's do that, okay? Because we're going to get into it. Say again? We don't have access to that book. It will be read, though. We'll, we'll eventually hear it. Yeah. yeah. We don't have access to the book. Yeah. Good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to come together, and we know that some of these truths that are in Scripture are difficult to wrestle with. They are very challenging and hard, and I don't want to minimize that debate at all. I don't want to trivialize what's being said in your Word. I don't want to I don't want to minimize anything. I, I, would, I would rather just take it all and just take it all as truth and, and just go on from there. And so we, I pray that we could do that. And I also pray that you would help us as we think through questions, as we wrestle through the implications of all of these things. What, what a challenging uh, word you've set before us. I pray that we would take it with joy and understand what's being communicated in your word and that we would come to love it and cherish it and understand and in light of all of this, may our worship intensify. May our, our, the praise that we give to you intensify. May our, our being overwhelmed at your grace poured out to us intensify. May we just continue to be blown away day by day as we uncover the truths of your word, what you tell us, how we're even saved by grace. Unbelievable. What a magnificent thing you've done for us. And may we always wrestle with it. Why us? So I pray that you would give us that kind of awe of who you are, your holiness, your justice, but your grace and mercy as well. In Jesus' name, amen.